I come before you uh, ready to share. I really did study for days, but my dog ate my homework. You guys may have seen it in Facebook. You can still see it. The criminal is there with this look. What, me? I didn't do anything. He only ate. I mean, you know, he ate sparingly. He only ate the heart of the message. I had four pieces of paper with my scribble, which is secret code. I, only I can read it. Uh, but this dog, I don't know. The, he had, he, these pieces of paper, and in one page had both sides. That was the heart of the message. He ate the middle out of it, just left the edges. So in other words, I think the Holy Spirit used him to say, hey, that message wasn't worth giving. Anyway, you need to start over. So I went to bed about 2 o'clock this morning, got up again around 7 or so, and uh, trusted God to put it together. We'll see, won't we? He really did eat my homework. I'm serious. Yeah, sure. <laughs> this is part of the series, Let's Give Up on the Church, question mark. How many of you have ever ch left church mad? <laughs> the pastor's wife. <laughs> really? Yes. You guys, we're real people. We've left churches before. Uh, there's one church in particular I know that we left the wrong way. We actually took offense on behalf of someone else. You guys ever done that? Oh, you guys are all perfect. We don't worry about that. But those of you who are really bad people, you've, you've taken offense on someone else's behalf. They never ask you to, but you decided to get on their team and said, yeah, they're just a bunch of jerks and hypocrites. You ever said that? They're just a bunch of hypocrites. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Honesty is in the house. I love that. Well, we have. I remember we left actually as a large church, and we were very upset over uh, someone we really liked who was a, a coach, and our daughter's coach, and we felt he was mistreated at a church in Tulsa, and we left. And I instantly regretted it, but you know pride. He's kind of back down now. We've already made our stand. But I'm thankful to say that the Lord in His mercy allowed us to reconcile. And later that pastor sought me out, and before he died, I was able to help him write a book that's still uh, out ministering and making changes around the world because he's on national television at that time, and I was able to help him. But we reconciled fully to the point where he became such a dear friend that when he died unexpectedly, I mean, I grieved for months. I just had lost a dear friend. So God made that situation right. But almost all of us have been hurt in church. We've been ticked off at people. And uh, probably the most common line I've heard over the years is, yeah, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. We should all plead guilty. Been there, done that. I can't even plead the fifth. It's already there. I'm still doing it. Um, a hypocrite says one thing and does another. The word hypocrite's rooted in the Greek word hypocrites, which means stage actor, pretender, dissembler, which is an even weirder word that says faking it and uh, doing something else. This is in the exact opposite uh, to what James said in his uh, epistle. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. That's a real problem we face. And it, I would say hypocrisy is one of the biggest reasons people have had it with church. I and mean, we're going to get hurt in church. I mean, if you have two people in a room, you're going to have at least 18 opinions that are constantly changing. And if you add more than two people to the room, it really gets bad. And uh, that is a problem. Now, here's the deal. 
Hypocrisy is not unique to the church. Hypocrisy is wherever people are who are breathing because it's in us. It's endemic. That's a fancy word saying it's part of it. It's from head to toe. It's all the way through us, in us. We have to have that worked out of us. And it's something we can't do on our own. We can police ourselves and we can learn, but it really takes a power beyond us. It takes a vaccine. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit inside us to work us out of hypocrisy and to help us live together. You Go ahead and look around at, at the weirdness in this room. I mean, the beauty in this room. Look around. I mean, actually take a look at each other. It's okay. This is the one time it's okay to look at the neighbor behind you. And if you laugh, it's expected right now. I mean, we are an odd bunch. I love it. I, one of the things I love is the, you know, the church is one of the oddest places on the planet. I love it. I've been privileged by the Lord to, to go into most of the continents and to walk in, in hundreds, maybe thousands of churches, be in all kinds of services. I've had the chance to be offended by so many people. And I've had the chance to offend incredible numbers of people. And I am constantly amazed at the miracle of the church. Because I have been able to walk into places. I, one, one memory that's burned into my brain is I was invited to join Bishop Duku in my first trip to Africa. And I thought, man, this is great. I'm going to go to Africa. And then it dawned on me there's actually more involved. But anyway, I saw it. We finally got to Africa after this one particularly was 14, 18 hour trip. And we got to South Africa and they said, well, the very first thing we're gonna do is we're not gonna go to a big city. We're gonna go out into the bush. I found out how much bush we're talking about. When I got back from Africa, I happened to look at an old, I'm a National Geographic fan. And I happened to look at an old one that was so old it was only in black and white. We're talking 40s and before. And this old one was really old. It was like something like 1908. And on the back, they still do it. National Geographic will show in the back a photo they didn't use for an article. But it's always a, a remarkable one. This was a black and white photo of African natives in a specific city. And the reason this caught my eye is that was the town we went to in the middle of the bush, in the middle of nowhere in South Africa. And that was the first place that Stanley Livingston entered. And he was the first white man ever to be seen in that old, old village. And the people were doing a dance for the white visitors bringing the gospel, and it was in National Geographic, and it was, it was really stark, it was amazing. That was the place we went. They had set up a tent in a field right beside a two-lane road, and people, I found out later, people walked. They knew we were coming ahead of time, and they walked, some of them, for two weeks to get there, and they surrounded us. Most of them were women, and they carried... Um, bottles of water and what looked like old passports. And they came because they were hungry and they were hungry for hope and they're hungry for the word. And we had to have like two or three translators. There's so many languages being taught in that time. And then the teaching only went maybe 15, 20 minutes because it, when you translate into two or three different languages, it makes it a 45 minute message or longer. Then they said, okay, we need to pray for them. 
and immediately we were surrounded. There was probably six people on the team, Bishop Duku and Pastor Tom Arnold and a few others. And uh, the tent was probably, uh, you know, about like that, a circus-style tent. Every space was filled. They were tight up against each other. And all of a sudden, these people surrounded me with water bottles filled with water. It was kind of dirty looking. And what looked like passports. And all I knew to do, this is my first time. I mean, this is my baptism in fire. And uh, we began to pray. I just prayed over. I said, okay, I'm going to pray over their water. I prayed over their water. And they hold me, look at these old passports. And I noticed they're kind of old. And I looked at the pictures. And I just laid my hand on them and started praying. And uh, they broke into tears. What struck me was the hunger they had. And also when we worshiped, they worshiped with such fire and joy. And they had nothing. And I found out that these things dated from apartheid. First of all, most of them came from a village where the water was poisoned and contaminated and they were getting sick. And they wanted us to pray over the water that whatever was making them sick, it would be broken and bound. So we had to believe that by faith. Even Bishop Duku couldn't speak their language, and he had to have an interpreter, and he speaks two or three of the particular African languages. So anyway, and then the passports were from the apartheid era, when you had to get what amounted to a uh, passport and a visa just for the day, and you could not stay overnight. If they caught you after sundown, you were immediately thrown in jail. Period. No matter who you were, including Bishop Duku. This was during the apartheid. And what happened is many of the young men were taken uh, and would never be seen again to work in mines or things like that. And others took a risk to try and leave South Africa to get work so they can send money back to their families. Well, these were photos of relatives, most of the men who had never been seen for 10 or 15 years by that time. And that's who we were praying for. The hunger for God's Word and the hope that that Word would give was what they came for. That really struck me. They treasure the Word of God. And they treasure the power of the kingdom. And they really believe in prayer. Um, we saw many, many, many miracles on that trip. Changed me forever. Let's give up on the church, question mark. Very common, common question, especially in the younger generation. And uh, I really can't blame them for that. They really have seen a lot of evidence that seems to prove that the church really isn't worth much. We're going to go into that. I want to read something first from Matthew 22. This is the King James Version. It's very familiar. And what Jesus is doing is he is answering a question. He is asked. It was a trick question. He was being set up by lawyers and by religious leaders who were trying to trip him up. And they said, what are the two greatest commandments in the Scriptures? The Scriptures that time, just the Old Testament. And this is what he said. This is him speaking to his critics. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And this is the first and great commandment. And the second, emergency alert, flash lighting warning. I've turned off my sound, but these silly things keep going, don't they? Everybody said, well, maybe it'll be a move of the Holy Spirit too. I don't know. All right. 
And the second like it is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And after he said that, it was over. All of his critics had to just leave. Jesus had this way. They're going to get that across to us, aren't they? I want you to, to catch that part. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the first thing that happens with all the people that want an excuse not to love the person next to them is, well, who's my neighbor? And, of course, we know from Scripture that question was asked the Lord. And Jesus gave them a parable they, again, didn't like. And that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the Samaritans were never considered good at all. To even say that was almost blasphemy. Jesus had this way of getting right to the point with us. And he's going to do it today again. Uh, I'm going to read something real quick, too, in John 13. My point is going to be pretty clear. Let me give you a new command. Love one another. In the same way I loved you, you love one another. He's talking to his disciples. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples when they see the love you have for each other. That's John 13, 34 through 35 in the Message Bible. Perhaps the reason so many people have had it and they want to leave church is because this is not happening. I mean, just frankly, have you ever asked yourself why we have 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 53rd Church of God on each corner? Uh, a few years ago, I was asked to participate in an apostolic conference in Fort Smith not because I was anything great. I guess I just knew the right people, so I showed up. And um, uh, at one point, they were asking, they had noticed that there were certain um, forces at work in different cities, and uh, we had two Native American chiefs um, attending that had become nationally renowned for their leadership, particularly in their own tribes, where they had gone into uh, reservations where the suicide rate exceeded 50% among young men, or they had gone into places where disease and alcoholism had ravaged the tribe to the point that almost ceased to exist. They called these Indian leaders in who were strong Christian leaders too church leaders, and they began to teach the simple things of life in Christ, and these, it, it was um, confirmed, in fact, astounded government officials that things turned around in each reservation where these people, these leaders were involved. Then they began a reconciliation tour crossing the United States. They went into every state of the United States and particularly addressed the American uh, uh, Indian tribe members or Native Americans, because I don't know if you know it, but virtually every single treaty that the U.S. government made with Native American tribes was broken repeatedly. I mean, every single one. We'd make it, sign it, and break it, and just it happened over and over again. So it's caused a lot of pain. What they were doing is not griping about that, but saying in Christ, we have the grace to forgive and release and they were bringing healing. Well, those two guys were there um, in that meeting. And at that point, I really felt it, it uh, uh, urge in my heart that God had something for me to say. And uh, the leader of the meeting was my friend. He told me to come on up. And, and I said, I, I really have to say, I believe that the prevailing opponent or spirit over this region 
uh, is a spirit of division and of separation. And these two American uh, Indian leaders stood up, I mean, just stood up to affirm it. And the whole place began to fall into a hush. And we began to pray into that thing. And if you look into this region, that whole thing of separation, this used to be known as death row for preachers. It really was. The, the, it didn't matter what denomination you talked to. You could talk to the Southern Baptist Convention. You could talk to the United Methodist Church. And you'd find that pastors hated to be assigned to this area because they just got so beat up. And there were suicides, and marriages would be crushed in this region. It was just a terrible place for them. That's since been broken. But it, that, that spirit of division is the cancer of the church. It's what causes people to say, oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. They say one thing, and they do another. And there is a cure for that, and we need to know that. For We don't have to... Um, to bend and kowtow and, and please everybody on the planet would basically wouldn't be a church anymore, it would be a country club, and even then would be prejudiced and only let certain groups in. The heart of Jesus, the one who established his country club, he's the one who abolished circles. He abolished the inner circle. He said you don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to have religious training. You don't have to be educated. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be one color or another, I've come that all may come. And uh, we need to recapture his heart because, you know, this is his place. And he has a way he wants his house run. You know, every household is different. How many of you guys ever were, either you grew up in a household or you loved to go to a house where the door was always open and the entire neighborhood was there? You ever have one of those? I mean... How many of you grew up in a house where every neighbor kid was one of your kids? Oh, you know what I'm talking about. They're, they're welcoming places. They might even be so comfortable that they get after you. Like the mom in the house may say, okay, wipe your feet. You're going to help with the dishes after the meal. They treat you like your own kid. I mean, I had neighbors like that. And it's kind of a wonderful thing. Well, this needs to be that kind of house because that's the way Jesus is. Let's move on. Uh, I'm going to read... The personal prayer of Jesus from John 17. This is part of the high priestly area. As Jesus neared the end of his life, heading to the garden, some of this actually takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane, his prayers got pointed. His prayers got vital. What he prayed in those moments, it was the bare bones, pure heart of Jesus because he didn't have any time left not in his existence on the earth. So whatever he says, those, that last word thing, those last words really count. And this is part of his high priestly prayer. If you want to know the heart of Jesus toward the church, how he thinks about us, look here. <clears throat> this is John 17 in the Message Bible, beginning with verse 20. He's praying to his Father. I'm praying not only for them, meaning the 12 disciples and the people who followed him at that point, but also for those who will believe in me. Say, that's us. He's talking about those who would believe afterwards. Because of them and their witness about me, the goal is for all of them to become one heart and mind, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. 
so that they might be one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. The same glory you gave me, I gave them. So they'll be as unified and together as we are. I and them and you and me. Then they'll be mature in this oneness and give the godless world evidence that you've sent me and love them in the same way you love me. Now that's the heart of Jesus. If you ever wonder what God thinks about this crazy oddball church, that's what he thinks about this crazy oddball church. That's what he thinks about us. That's why he wouldn't want us to give up on the church. Because it's his thing. It's his heart. To actually walk away from the church is to walk away from Jesus. And I know we can get into arguments on what the church looks like, what its size is. The truth is, it's all of the above. It's home churches. It's large churches. It's small churches. It's all kinds of things. But one thing that should define every part of it, no matter where you come from, should be the attitude of Jesus and the rule of Jesus. If love isn't involved, love for each other, complete with spots, wrinkles, screw-ups, terrible history, terrible prognosis for the future, you know, all of our hang-ups and, and issues, if it doesn't have love sealing it, then it, it doesn't reflect Him. It's okay to be part of a home church. It's okay to be part of this church, to be part of First Baptist, to be part of First Methodist or... Uh, it goes on and on. Guys, the whole point is, is the heart and attitude of Jesus there? Because if it isn't, we've got a serious problem. The truth is, most of the people that leave church mad, and again, I'm saying that as somebody who's done it, um, we use that we're like the person that storms out of the emergency room with our IV line still stuck on our arm, and we're leaving a trail of blood from the bleeding leg. We have left what, what do they call that, leaving against advice? What was it? Okay, AMA, against medical advice. Uh, that's what we do when we leave church in a huff. There are ways to deal with, I mean, the scriptures give us all kinds of ways to deal with differences because we're going to disagree. It's going to happen. We're going to argue over theology. We can't even decide which, you guys, we can't even decide which way to put the toilet paper. <laughs> we're people. We're good at that kind of stuff. We can get so, we can go get so weird about the most unimportant things in the world. I mean, how many divorces have happened over socks? It just took 20 years, but it worked around to, he leaves the socks, I'm divorcing, I'm out of here. You know what I mean? Just, we, we really can major on minors. Jesus knew that. He died for us knowing how screwy we are. We're goofy to the max. I mean, we have serious mental problems. And he died for us. He doesn't care. I love the way he works from the inside out. I mean, our disease cannot be cured with a pill. Our disease cannot be cured with the class. It takes a lifetime of walking with Jesus. And the neat thing is, every day we do produces miracles. I love the church. I love the weirdness of the church. I do. I thrive on differences. I've often, I, I've talked about this before. When I was in Pennsylvania, we were part of a Mennonite church. You know, Mennonites with the things on their heads and... Right, 
next to, actually they were the original, and the Amish, who are famous, they were a split off from the Mennonites because the Mennonites weren't strict enough. So they created their own thing. Anyway, so <clears throat> that's kind of the way we are. So we were in the Mennonite church, and we had uh, a local AA chapter start attending one of our home groups. And uh, of course, we accommodated. We had to give them you know, cigarette breaks. And in the Mennonite church, smoking didn't necessarily be something they approve of. <clears throat> but we'd give them their smoke breaks, and then they'd come back in. And I love that class. I'm going to speak some French, you guys, so it's okay. But we'd be there studying, and, you know, nice, uh, everybody that grew up in the Mennonite church and the whole thing. And it's, this guy interrupted us in the middle, and he'd point his Bible and say, what the hell does this mean? And I just love it. I loved hearing that. I spoke French, you guys. It's okay. It's a place or where bad people go, I guess. Anyway, but I love that because it was so stinking honest. They're just honest. And we let them know we love them. And then they'd take the breaks, and then we'd talk about the problems of dealing with the addiction. And we'd, we'd acknowledge we don't know anything about that, but we do know Jesus, and he can help you through. The church is a place for healing. Let me move on quick, because I want to keep sticking with this prayer of Jesus and how different we are. Love was so important that the Apostle Paul was right in the middle in 1 Corinthians, was right in the middle of describing the powerful ministry and the possible abuses of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, this new thing. Remember, it hadn't ministered like this before Jesus had risen from the grave. Jesus prophesied and told the disciples the Holy Spirit was going to come and take his place in our daily lives. <clears throat> but he said it would be different than anything we knew. So Paul's in the middle of describing how the Holy Spirit works in the church and all these, these uh, gifts, these spiritual gifts that were strange and hadn't been seen except in bits and pieces among the prophets of old. And so he's in the middle of that, and right in the middle he stops, and he does the most famous treatise in the entire world of any form of literature on love. We call it the love chapter. It's 1 Corinthians 13. Right in the middle, because we are people, and we get puffed up. If we master something and, and Joe Blow next to us doesn't, we like to say, I've got it, and you don't. And so he knew that we we're going to do that with the gifts of the Spirit and the whole thing. Well, that chapter is powerful, but we ignore it. So what I did is I rewrote it for you. We're going to put it up for you. I'm going to read this. You can read it up on the screen. This is the 21st century rewrite of the love chapter. <clears throat> we are impatient. We are unkind. We boast in our pride, and we elevate those most skillful at dishonoring others. We idolize and enshrine the self-seeking, and we are easily angered. We never forget or forgive a wrong, no matter how slight. We delight in evil and prefer to avoid or rewrite the truth until it sounds right in our ears. We always protect ourselves and never trust others. We are hopeless and quick to quit, perhaps because failure is a lifestyle fostered from pampered or a brutal childhood. In this dark kingdom, these three prevail unbelief, hopelessness, and hatred. But hatred of self and hatred of all that is different, confrontational, or that draws us higher, this hatred is what remains. Now, that's a picture. It kind of shocked me as I started working on this. I looked at that, and I thought, man, that kind of defines our age. It kind of describes parts of our culture. Oh, my gosh. 
I did that just to show you when we look at it from a different way, we're beginning to realize we are part of a kingdom that's not of this earth. And our job isn't just to hope to get there and go away. Our job is to actually fulfill the Lord's prayer and answer the Lord Jesus' prayer, his request. You know, remember the Lord's prayer says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Most of us say, thy will be done by scooping us away and getting us out of here quick. We're all dying here. It's not what the Lord's prayer is. That wasn't the intention of the Lord. The intention of the Lord is that we show His kingdom right now. We be a light on a hill that we give hope. We show there can be more than what's just in us. Hallelujah. To choose division, offense, and distance over love is to deny Jesus the answer to the only prayer you and I have the power to answer for him. Remember his prayer? I pray, Father, that they may be one as you and I are one. That's the prayer and the heart's desire of Jesus. When we walk away from the church, when we quit the church in any of its forms, even if we quit part of it with an attitude, we are walking away from the very heart and desire of Jesus. Now, there are going to be times when you leave. I, we, one of the times that we had to leave a church, we were in a church that was very toxic, and I had to protect my wife and my children. But I also knew that when you have to do a thing, you need to do it right. So I went and I talked with the pastor, face-to-face, heart-to-heart, without anger, without fear, and without force. And I, then we quietly and gently left, trying to make sure that we cause no one else to leave the church or to be upset or whatever. That wasn't our thing, and we were careful not to gossip to the best of our ability. And that's how we ended up on the steps of a Mennonite church. Very interesting. We later realized it was good. And the, uh, the pastor of the church that seemed so toxic made it extra rough. He was my boss. And we were 1,300 miles away from where we considered home. We were in Pennsylvania. And so if things went south, we were really up a creek because we had no money even to get back home. But I had to do what God wanted me to do. But he made it clear I needed to do it his way. So this isn't a lecture on how to leave a church. I'm saying there are times when you need to make a shift. The other time is when God puts it on your heart and you get confirmation from the leaders in the church and they send you to another assignment or another location or another church. They send you with a blessing. That's the best way. Hallelujah. I will say that that church that was so toxic, it later disbanded as a church, but I was able to restore and stay close friends with this pastor. And later, when I started my own company and left his, he sent me out with a father's blessing. Unheard of because we had to all had to sign no compete clauses and all kinds of stuff. He sent me out and gave his blessing to it. So God is able to restore all things, but he wants us to do things his way. I mean, what if this thing went wrong? What if, just imagine real quick, say the 120 in the upper room got ticked off after three days in a closed space. They got into a fist fight, and the fight spills out into the street at the height of a holy day. So much for the church, it's over. Just like that. Um, Paul and Silas, remember Paul and Silas? They were um, 
whole reason they landed in prison is because they went up to the gate beautiful and they talked to the beggar and caused him to be healed and receive sight. And then uh, that's when they were thrown in prison. But what, what if Paul and Silas actually, instead of being a witness, they got in a fight over who could claim credit for the healing? And there would be no, I mean, it says that after uh, they were confronted that the leaders scratch, basically scratched their head and they took note that they had been with Jesus. It was a positive thing. I said, how in the world these guys get that bright? They have, don't have any theological training. They don't have, they're fishermen. What's going on with these guys? How in the world could they work this miracle? How could they stand in front of the Sanhedrin facing death, not back down and yet be gentle? How could they do this? And they took note that they had been with Jesus. Well, what if, again, these guys got into an argument over who could claim a supernatural miracle? Well, then people would scratch their head and take note that they had been with Jesus, and it wouldn't be a good thing. How many times does that happen in church? People take note at us. And they say, and they claim to be Christians? That's why people say, ah, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. They say one thing, they do another. So what happens when we mess up all the time? Well, part of that's normal. You, are, you and I are going to mess up. We are going to blow it from time to time. We're going to get mad at each other. Do not look at your spouse right now. And we are going to disagree. That's going to happen. In fact, that's part of the process. But the question is, do we keep this big picture? We need to understand there's a reason why we shouldn't quit the church. There's a reason because this thing, some of my greatest, uh, my favorite teachings have to do with the potter's wheel because it so describes life in Christ today. The Old Testament has a picture of a potter's wheel uh, where a prophet uses that potter's wheel to describe how God is the pot maker or the, the pottery artisan who is forming us on a potter's wheel. And there's so many things about a potter's wheel that we can actually teach on and preach on. The problem is while God is forming us in this church he's created, we keep wanting to get off the potter's wheel. We want to jump off before we're completed, before we're formed. And uh, God, Jesus loves his church complete with wrinkles and divided splinters, but he intends to purify us, perfect us, and unify us. That's his plan. He knows we're messed up. But he uses the church to fix us. There's a, a, a scripture in Proverbs that describes the process and... Uh, Again, a lot of it, unless you are in metals or doing anything like that, you, you don't understand this. Let me turn this page. This is hard, you guys. Using a microphone, and I have dry fingers all the time. My dog ate my papers, okay? Uh, that scripture says this. Proverbs 27, 17. King James, you recognize it. I'm going to read it out of the message. You use steel to sharpen steel, and one friend sharpens another. It's a picture of how rubbing together... Um, years ago, I had to go up to uh, East Coast Steel. I worked for an ad agency at that time, and I was doing a, a um, uh, basically a slideshow back in those, you know, slides, you may not know what those were. Anyway, way back in the ancient days, dinosaurs roamed the earth then. But I was there, and I found out how, uh, what ESCO did is they made craftsman wrenches. <clears throat> 
the, the smaller type, not the big ones. And they, a lot of those are stamped out of hardened steel, but they have a lot of uh, gross stuff on them. They have sharp edges. You know what they do? They put them in big drums, taller than I am, with stones from creeks is what it looks like. And they run water through it, and that, that thing turns constantly. And they use those wrenches bouncing against each other and the stones to knock the scale off that steel and to knock off all the rough edges. It's kind of a picture of, of how you strike steel against steel. Of course, you can get sparks. That's a picture of the church. The Lord's like set up a big drum called the church, and he puts us against each other, with each other. He makes us rub against each other, bump up against our opinions, our weaknesses, our doofus moments. You know, we all have those. Uh, he especially, I tell you, the biggest sparks come from pride, when pride hits pride, you know. No, I'm the lead dog here. No, I'm the lead dog. No, I'm the one who's right. Well, I'm, I have the degree. Yeah, you have a degree of stupidity, but I mean, you know, it goes on and on. But the Lord uses this. He actually uses the church with all of us grading against each other. And if we don't understand the maturity process, we miss it. The people who miss this the least are people who grew up in large homes. How many of you grew up with like brothers or sisters, preferably two or more? Uh huh. You guys know what that's like, don't you? It's all sweet and pretty, and everybody gets along wonderfully, right? Not, huh? Now, I, I have seen brothers and sisters. Uh, both my parents grew up in large families. I just had one sister, <clears throat> although she could argue enough for five or six people. <clears throat> and she's usually better at it than me. But anyway, but in a large family, you, you don't want to try and break up the fight. Go ahead and let them fight it out. They'll be fine. But if anybody ever comes against one member of the family, you ever notice, I mean, police officers hate going into domestic disputes where there's lots of brothers or sisters because one thing's always guaranteed. You always want backup and you want them to watch the others because the minute you deal with one, you're dealing with them all. They all jump on you. In the church, Jesus works with our differences. If we stay on the potter's wheel and we don't get off, he works out the impurities. He squeezes out the bubbles. He finds the impurities, stops the wheel, takes the impurity out, tosses it, rewets the wheel, starts it again, and forms us into a perfect shape. And we leave before his process is done. That most, uh, there are people who re are really irritating. And Arnie and I, <laughs> Arnie, yeah, when I first met Arnie, Let me get this up here. okay, the halo. When I first met Arnie, he was, he was a Christian by his fingernails. First of all, he's from Boston. Well, you were at that point. You're barely out of Boston. Hanging on with his fingernails. He comes up. Uh, I don't even know what type of motorcycle it was. It was a big motorcycle to me. It, it was big. I was being a jerk. Anyway... <laughs> Okay. So he drives up outside of a Bible study meeting. He's just there to meet Vicky. I knew that. They were, have you guys even started dating yet or what? But I knew he was just there for Vicky. And he comes up on a motorcycle with a leather jacket and he, he turns off the engine and says, don't touch my bike, I'll kill you. <laughs> you did too. 
So I sat on it. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. He added more fringe to it, see? And so I sat on it. And then I sat on your bike, didn't I? And we've been best friends ever since. But man, it's been interesting. Our relationship has been really fun. Because Arnie's, Arnie's style was, if you ticked him off, he'd clock you, and then he'd tell you about Jesus later, when you woke up. I mean, he was fun. He's really gentle and meek and mild. <laughs> but see, Arnie and I, I, I learned so much from Arnie. He has been a blessing to me, but as different as night and day as we could in so many ways. But man, he's been a best friend. I was away from you probably for 12 years or more uh, in Tulsa and then in Pennsylvania. But whenever we were together, it's like no time had passed. He was shocked that I considered him, you know, my best friend. He said, really? <laughs> but he is. I mean, he's just is precious to me. Many of you have friends like that, and God will give you relationships with people that are so different from you, and yet they will bring out the gold in your life if you let them. That's the joy and the beauty of the church. So I want to encourage you, don't leave before the party really hits the high point. Right now, it looks like a pretty rough go sometimes, but I encourage you, keep going. All right. Key scripture. This is the one we started with. We're going to end with this. Watch the way you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps. Each word a gift. Don't grieve God. Don't break his heart. His Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. Make a clean break with all cutting, backbiting, profane talk. Be gentle with one another, sensitive. Forgive one another as quickly and thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you.